In today's video, we are going over an evidence-based guide to cervical radiculopathy. Let's do it. This is part five on our series on cervical radiculopathy. If you missed the prior parts, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Definitely go check those out and then get back to this one. So is neural mobility helpful in treatment for cervical radiculopathy? So Rafiq et al. in 2022 tried to answer this question. And they were doing a comparison of neural mobilization and conservative treatment on pain range of motion and disability in cervical radiculopathy. This was a randomized controlled trial, which we like to see. They took patients between the age of 35 and 50, and their symptoms were two to six months in duration, right? So it wasn't a very recent onset of symptoms, but it wasn't like these folks had pain for years and years and year, years, excuse me, like I said, between two and six months. They were given 12 sessions total over the course of four weeks, three times per week, the follow-up was at two weeks and again at four weeks, so pretty short-term in nature. Group one had a neural stretch in the upper limb neural tension test position, one set of 10 for 30 seconds. They're also given isometrics, so three sets of 10 with a five-second hold in all directions. So think about lateral flexion, flexion, extension, right? Group two had no neural mobility or no neural stretching. They just had the same exact isometrics I just said. The outcome measures were pain the neck disability index, excuse me, index, and then range of motion. And the results found that the neuromobility group improved pain, improved the neck disability index, but had the same cervical range of motion at the two-week mark as well as the four-week mark, excuse me, four-week mark. The other important consideration is that both groups improved over the course of time. They didn't have a control group that did nothing, okay? So largely, we're not sure if neuromobility is better necessarily than doing nothing. Although you can make the argument that we know that exercise in the short term is better than nothing. So you can assume that the neural tension plus isometrics may be a little bit better than just isometrics alone and maybe a little bit better than doing nothing. And now I've got a free guide for you today. It's an evidence-based cheat sheet to cervical radiculopathy. We go over all the fundamental basics for diagnosis and treatment of cervical radiculopathy. It's an eight page PDF and I'll take you from a novice to an expert extremely quickly. I'm going to leave a link in the description so you can go ahead and download that right now and get learning. And lastly, this cheat sheet was specifically made for the lesson today. So I have all of the bullet points in this presentation included in the cheat sheet. And this is really nice. So if you download it, you can follow along with today's lesson. And the other piece is that a couple months from now, if you're like, ah, oh, man, I kind of forgot what Dan said about cervical radiculopathy. You have a new patient coming in tomorrow and you want to make sure you do a good job. You can just take a look at the cheat sheet, reference it, and just nail your examination. Should we use a cervical collar in the treatment of folks who have cervical radiculopathy? Now, this one just makes me laugh because the idea of giving someone a, cer a cervical collar seems so outdated, although we do have some research to show it can be beneficial. And Kuj Parr et al. in 2009, we already kind of reviewed that article, found the collar was as effective as exercise in the short term. However, there's no difference after six months. So if you just give folks a collar in the first three to six weeks, right, three weeks every day, that three to six week mark as needed, right? that's as effective as doing exercises, all right? So cervical collar or exercises, kind of your patient's choice. Toombs et al. in 2013 found low-level evidence that a collar is no more effective than physiotherapy at short-term follow-up. So basically, just like we're saying with Kujper, you can use a cervical collar or you could use exercise, up to you. There's very low-level evidence that a collar is no more effective than traction. So maybe you can use traction as well to be as effective. 
And there's low level evidence that traction is no more effective than placebo traction, right? So is using a collar as effective as a placebo, right? We're kind of jumping. This is all very low level evidence. So we can't jump the conclusions here, uh, but at least you have a little bit of data. Overall, I generally don't use a cervical collar. I'd rather do an active approach that gets people moving, improves their health, right? And doesn't get them fearful of moving their neck. Is cervical traction effective as a treatment for patients with cervical radiculopathy? Young et al. in 2009 used mechanical cervical traction as part of a mixed modal treatment program of manual therapy and exercise for patients with cervical radiculopathy. And they found no significant additional benefit to pain, function, or disability in patients with cervical radiculopathy. So Fritz et al. in 2014, and this is a study that is pretty familiar to most of the students that I tend to work with regularly, found that adding mechanical traction to exercise for patients with cervical radiculopathy resulted in lower disability and pain, particularly at the lower, longer-term follow-ups. So this study was actually pretty hopeful in suggesting that adding mechanical traction to your standard physical therapy program will actually give you a better, longer-term outcome. And then Romeo et al. in 2018, this was a systematic review meta-analysis and actually included the Young and Fritz study I just talked about previously. They stated there was some support of mechanical and manual traction for cervical radiculopathy in addition to other physical therapy procedures for pain reduction. However, there is a lesser effect on function and disability. Okay. So overall, there's mixed evidence on cervical traction. If you're going to use it, it seems like you should do it in conjunction with other things, and it may or may not give you an improvement in longer-term outcomes. And if you're going to use cervical traction, you might as well like this video and subscribe to the Fitness Pain-Free channel. Is manual therapy effective in patients that have cervical radiculopathy? So Borella Andres et al. in 2021 tried to answer this question. The study was manual therapy as a management of cervical radiculopathy, a systematic review. Pretty cool study. Really like this study. And they looked at 17 clinical trials over the past 10 years. It was a 2021 study. So 2011 to 2021. And they found nine high quality studies on the Pedro scale. So the Pedro scale is a system we can use to see how high quality the research study is. You probably learned this in physical therapy school. What's kind of nice is that they had some fairly high quality studies in order to figure out if manual therapy was more effective than other forms of treatment, right? And one of the takeaways with this study is that manual therapy was effective in the treatment of symptoms related to cervical radiculopathy in all studies regardless of the type of technique and the dose applied. So as you'll see in a minute, there are very different treatment strategies from a manual therapy perspective. We see all different types from manipulations to mobilizations. The dosages are all over the place and largely they all seem to help and they all seem to help similarly. So what did the manual therapy help with? It was specifically helpful for reducing pain and improving disability most of these results were in the short term. So basically immediately after the intervention was applied or up to around four weeks or so. Okay. So largely in the long term, it seems like things kind of revert back to the mean a little bit, but in the short term, it does seem to be additive. They also did not establish which manual techniques are most effective. It seems like all of these tend to improve patient symptoms, which I think is a little frustrating for students. Like what kind of technique should I use for the patient in front of me? It seems like you have a lot of choices. Manual therapies just seem to be a little additive above just doing exercise alone. And it seems to be helpful in the short term. It doesn't tend to matter too much which treatment you tend to use. Although I'll go over the studies and which manual therapies they used. If you guys like what you're learning about so far, then the next logical step is to sign up 
up for the fitness pain-free mini course. I've made an absolutely free mini course and we go over four vital lessons for coaches and clinicians. The first lesson goes over how traditional schooling has failed us. Now, I'm actually a really big fan of education, and I think that physical therapy school actually prepared me pretty well to work with the average person. However, I really didn't learn how to work with the population that I want, which is people in the strength and fitness world. So I'm talking about powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting, sport of fitness, and really people that just love working hard in the gym. And really my goal with the mini course is to help you understand how you work with this population to get them out of pain and keep them training. The next lesson is seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym. So it's vitally important they understand the injury mechanisms or why people get hurt in the gym. If we don't understand why folks are getting hurt in the gym, it's going to be very hard to rehabilitate those folks because let's say we do get them better, they go right back in the gym and get hurt in the same exact way they hurt before. The other piece is if we want to keep these folks safe for the long haul, we have to understand the main reason why these folks get hurt in the first place so we can keep them in the gym training as safe as possible and minimize that risk of future injury. Next, we go over four simple steps for getting your clients out of pain. Now, rehab can be very complicated. There's a lot of systems out there that make it very challenging to figure out how to work with your patients. However, it really doesn't have to be that complicated. So I go over four easy steps you can follow to get your patients out of pain and back in the gym where they belong. Lesson number four is how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. Let's face it. The reason why you take these educational courses is obviously so you can learn a little bit more, but really the deep seat of reason is because you want to have the respect of your community. You want your clients to come in, work with you and say, wow, Joe was great. He did a phenomenal job with me tell their friends and their friends come to see you. And after a while, you're very valued and respected within your community. So I'm going to teach you how to do that. Second piece is that if you know these skills, it doesn't always mean you have a ton of patients going through the door so you can work with the population you want to work with, right? So you may be the absolute best coach in the world, but no one wants to come and see you because they don't know who you are and they don't know how good you actually are. So we'll teach you how to get the patients through the door that you want to work with. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification. This is the largest and most comprehensive educational course that I offer, but more on this later. So I'll leave a link in the description, in the show notes. Again, it's 100% free, really easy to download. Go ahead and do that right now. And now back to your learning. So Afzal et al. in 2009 was looking at patients with cervical radiculopathy. In group one, these patients received manual intervertebral foraminal opening techniques, three sets of 10. Group two had manual traction, so 10 seconds on, five seconds off for 10 minutes. And group three received both of these treatments. They were given these treatments three times a week for a total of three weeks, and there was an improvement in the neck disability index, pain, range of motion, and the patient-specific functional scale at three weeks for the group that received the manual therapies and the manual therapies with traction. However, there was no control group. So for the majority of studies I'm going to be talking about here, they don't have a control group that got nothing. Okay. So largely they're looking at exercise and manual therapy versus manual therapy, or as you'll see a variety of different groups, but they're not looking at a group that got nothing. And that's important to understand because we're not really sure if these interventions are necessarily better than doing nothing at all. All right. You can, however, make the argument, like I said before, exercise tends to help people above doing nothing, at least in the short term. And it seems like adding manual therapies to exercise is even better than just doing exercise alone, which is probably going to be better than doing nothing. But 
I would have loved to see some control groups in these studies to see if doing nothing or a sham actually improved things more so or less so, or it was the same exact result. Bukhari et al. in 2016 was looking at mechanical traction versus manual traction. And both groups included exercise and segmental mobilization. The segmental mobilizations they used was a prone PA technique. They did a five-second mobilization for 10 total reps, and they did it at the C3 to C7 level. They did this three times a week for six total weeks. What they found, there's improved outcomes in both groups with mechanical traction being superior to manual therapy. Again, no control group that did nothing. Cui et al. in 2017 was also looking at manual therapy versus mechanical traction. Was looking at manual therapy versus mechanical traction. Which one is superior? The manual therapy group received a Xi-style style cervical manipulation, which in the study they had some images, um, but it was hard to tell exactly what they were doing based on those images. I'll leave a link in the show notes if you guys want to check out that specific study and try to figure out what the heck that actually is. They also use some neck, back, and thoracic spine massage, as well as some pressure point therapy, right? I will also say that in this, in this systematic review that's looking at all of these manual therapy studies, there wasn't a lot of soft tissue work. There wasn't a lot of massage included in this study, okay? But in this uh, specific study by Cui et al., they had some massage included with other things like this she-style cervical manipulation, right? They received this treatment three times a week for a total of two weeks. And they had improved outcomes in both groups. However, the manual therapy group was superior to traction. Again, once we get a little further out, the VAS was similar at 10 weeks, right? So both of those groups had the same outcome at 10 weeks for VAS. And the neck disability uh, outcome, neck disability index outcome measure found a similar result at 22 weeks, right? So it seems like in the short term, the manual therapy strategy was more effective than traction. However, over the course of time, both groups kind of called up and they were the same. Eldis Soki et al. in 2019 was looking at conventional therapy versus manual therapy. Now, what was conventional therapy? Conventional therapy, by their definition, was ultrasound, stretching, and strengthening, okay? The manual therapy group got the conventional therapy program of ultrasound stretching and strengthening, but they're also giving PA glides, 10 repetitions of 30 seconds and oscillatory rotation movements at C6, C7, 10 sets of 30 seconds. They performed this three times a week for four weeks, and there were improved outcomes in both groups. The manual therapy group was superior to the conventional group, right? And this was at the end of the session. So essentially, when they finished the session, they checked these outcome measures. Was it better in one group versus the other? Yes, it was in the manual therapy group. And then again, at four weeks, was the manual therapy group better than the conventional? And again, it was, right? So this is kind of an interesting study that compares manual therapy and exercise versus exercise alone. And it does appear, at least in the short term, up to four weeks, that manual therapy was superior. So I'm not going to go through the rest of the studies because it's going to take way too long, but I want you to know which manual therapy techniques they utilized that were superior to exercise alone. So Hassan et al. in 2020 found some benefit of using Maitland oscillatory mobilizations. They used three sets of 15 repetitions. Ibrahim et al. in 2019 was looking at conventional therapy versus conventional therapy plus neural glides and neural tensioners, right? And the type of glide or slider they used was an upper limb neural tension test position, slider, and stretch. They combined a glide and a tensioner. 
and they used one to two sets of 10 repetitions and actually found no difference between groups, which was a little sad because I actually really like to use neural glides in my treatment program. And this study showed there was no difference between the conventional therapy and adding the neural mobilizations. Kim et al. in 2017 was looking at traction versus traction plus nerve glides. So they were doing a technique where they pulled ahead into some distraction and then apply a neural glide. And they found the neural glide was actually superior to the traction alone group. Kumar et al. in 2010 was looking at McKenzie versus neural mobilizations versus traction and diathermy. And what they found is that McKenzie had the best outcomes followed by traction, followed by neural mobilizations. And again, kind of sad because it seems like these, these neural techniques that I like to use are maybe not as powerful as some of the other manual therapy techniques, right? And in terms of how they utilize McKenzie, it sound a bit like they perform McKenzie just how it's classically taught. So they're looking for a mechanical derangement identification, a direction of preference, and then prescribe manual therapy based on that direction of preference they found in the initial evaluation. The other part is that all groups had a significant improvement. It's just that McKenzie was on the top. Okay. Langevin et al. in 2014 was looking at mobilizations to increase the intervertebral foraminal space versus cervical mobilizations just to increase cervical range of motion. So one group got specific exercises to try to open up the intervertebral space, and the other group just got mobilizations in all directions trying to improve range of motion. So the mobilizations to improve space were a lateral glide, a rotation mobilization, and an anterior superior lateral glide with a posterior inferior medial glide and unilateral PA added to the range of motion group. And they found the same exact outcome, which at least to me shows that when someone has a cervical radiculopathy, we don't need to give mobilizations just to open up that intervertebral foramen. We can just focus on range of motion in the entire neck and have the same outcome. So despite the range of motion not being that important in terms of which specific direction to go towards, I still think it's super important that you go towards the direction of the like button and hit that, as well as towards the direction of subscription and subscribe to the fitness pain-free channel. So now that you know more about cervical radiculopathy, you still need to know how to do all the special tests to rule in or rule out this condition. I have a great video for you. I'll leave a link in the corner right over there. Click on that and continue the learning. I'll see you on that next video. If you're interested in the references, I'll leave them in the description in the show notes. You can definitely check those out. Lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that thumbs up button. If you leave a comment, it helps the algorithm. I'd also love to know your thoughts on this presentation today. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps me out tremendously. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, please consider leaving me a positive review. Again, it helps tremendously. If you want to see more content like this in the future, we got to make sure we grow this over the course of time, right? And lastly, if you want to support me even further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. This is going to be my premium subscription membership to Fitness Pain-Free, where all my best content updated monthly uh, lives. So head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders online library, just $1 for a week trial. Also leave a link in the show notes in the description. All right, go ahead and check it out.